is Sunday School for Misfits, hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, a podcast where we, the Misfits, explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of our church experiences and the Christian beliefs and perspectives that we were taught. Welcome and thank you for listening. And welcome everyone to another episode of Sunday School for Misfits. I am so happy to have my friend, my Nigerian brother, he tries to claim I'm Nigerian, Eki. <laughs> but you are. <laughs> I made the mistake of telling him the results of my ancestry DNA test, which at the point that we spoke was about, it started off, I think it may be like 18% Nigeria. It's now like 48%. <laughs> yes. Nigeria will not carry last. But listen, I'm so glad that you're here, Eki. Um... When you're describing yourself or introducing yourself to people, how do you do it? You're a lawyer. You were doing a PhD in African traditional religion and theology. You do all kinds of things. What, how do you describe yourself to people? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, and the classic um, Nigerian, I'll probably start with my name, right? I think mm. it's, it's important. Um, so I'll kind of say my name. So my full name is Akim. Um, and as my name suggests, I'm Nigerian British. Um, I'm part of the Black British now. Um, and more particularly, I speak Yoruba. So I'm, I'm my family are from Ibadan, uh, which is the capital of Oyo State. Um, and at this junction, it's important I recite the praise poem of Ibadan people, um, uh, which is called Oriki. Um, and it basically goes, Ibadan, the homes of heroes who could not be oppressed after eating the bush mango. Ibadan, the land of warriors who, could, who did not fertilize with pacifists for flaring up violence in the streets is where they take satisfaction in. Ibadan, the land of brave hearts who take pleasure in waging war and they are offsprings of combatants they may, that many define to have violence. What, they, what there is left to explicit about the land of mysticism, of you who see war and dance, of you who see war and rejoice, those who never flee from battleground, those who never run away on the battlefield. So that's kind of, you know, wow. that's a classic. I mean, if, if I was, if I could speak, you know, a, a proper Ibadan person would have said this all fluently in Yoruba. So I'm just thought, you know, for our listeners, I'll say it all in English. Um, so thank you for giving us that really rich introduction. The reason why I asked you to join us today is to have a conversation about African traditional religion. And this is something that I have come to think more about in my own work as I've tried to trace the themes of Black liberation, Black flourishing, Black agency um, beyond life in the UK. Um, and even going beyond life in somewhere like Jamaica in the Caribbean, which is a place that is home for many of our ancestors, but isn't really where we're from. And so for me, going back into thinking about what is it that we can see in our traditional African heritage that empowers, that liberates, has led me to enter moving into a space that I didn't grow up thinking was even allowed. And, and talking about traditional African religion has become really popular, I think, mm-hmm. as Black people in around the world in the diaspora are trying to figure out how do we get free? And decolonizing faith, deconstructing 
often involves this this question about what do we need to recapture, if anything, if it's possible, from our African roots? And Akeem, your work engages with these questions in a very direct way. But I want to begin by first asking about your faith journey. Mm-hmm. And maybe those two things interact. For me, they do. My work often has flown from my own wrestling and questions. So tell us about your faith journey and how your work is interweaved. That's a really great question. Um, my faith journey is very interesting. As my name suggests, I'm, I was born into a Muslim family. Um, my name in Arabic means wise one. Um, but essentially, I come from a religiously pluralistic family. And how I used to see my mum and describe her was uh, she was essentially three and one. And what I mean by that is she practiced the three religions of Nigeria. So she was likewise born into a Muslim family herself. Um, She went to church of all traditions, interestingly, and when in trouble, she sought help from the Babalawa priest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell the people who might not know, what is a Babalawa priest? The Babalawa priest is essentially like a diviner, kind of in the tradition of Ifa, which is for some Yoruba traditional uh, religion, but more, it's, it's hard to define Ifa as religion, because it's both science, it's both philosophy, it's both moral. Um, so it's it's a it's a complex system. So she would always at times go to the Babalawo, the, the Ifa priest, the traditional um, priest um, to consult. And at the age of 14, um, I started going to a Baptist Pentecostal church in South London, my elder sister. And to my surprise, I became a, a Christ follower at the age of 16, and the rest is history. Can you say something about why you ended up becoming a Christian? Oh, Because your mom kind of has this pluralistic practice as she's drawing on all these different traditions. Why did you even feel that you needed to choose one? Was it a conscious choice? It wasn't a conscious choice. I just followed my sister to church because I had nothing better to do, and she's, I kind of you know, just followed her everywhere. She was my elder sister, whatever she did, I did. So I just found myself going to church. And then, oh man, I remember they had this kind of like conference for the week. Um, A lot of these like Pentecostal black churches do conferences for the week. And it's really important, right? I've never been to one. I never really grew up in in a Christian home in a sense. So I thought, you know, go ahead and just see what it's like. And then at the end, they had like a, Holy Spirit evening. I'm like, what's this Holy Spirit thing? You're about uh, to find out. <laughs> I was about to find out, literally to my surprise. And yeah, I encountered the Holy Spirit, which I never understood what was going on. It wasn't strange, but it, it was at the same time. I can't explain it. I think cognitively it was strange because my mind was trying to wrap and understand what was going on because um, it was nothing I've ever encountered. But spiritually, it felt safe at the same time. So I can't really explain it. And literally, that was kind of the beginning of my Christian journey. And, you know, never look back, never look back. (laughs) (laughs) But this is almost kind of also linked to my work as well. So I kind of give you a little brief of my work. So I'm currently a PhD, first year PhD student at Cambridge. And I'm essentially researching on a religious kind of research and indigenous Yoruba religious festival in Ilefe, Southwest Nigeria. 
And I'll pause here because Ile Fair for the Yoruba is the cradle of civilization, is where they actually believe the gods descended from an arrow, from a chain down um, to, to this earth and created literally the earth as we know it. And so it holds deep spiritual um, significance for the Yoruba. So this is essentially an ethnographic research that examines the question of Yoruba identity, ritual, politics, but also how do we understand traditional Yoruba worship, how that continues to intersect and interacts with the two Abrahamic faiths like Christianity and Islam. And then through this ethnographic work, I aim to develop a contextual theology. Okay, so most of our listeners know nothing about theology, nothing <laughs> about these words you use. So ethnographic. So essentially, lucky for me, I'm not going to be in the library for my entire uh, research. I like people. I like to engage with people. I want to see what people are doing, right? Rather than theologizing from the ivory tower in a nice little um, library at Cambridge, um, I'm going to be in Nigeria where I'm going to be there for a while. And I'm just going to interact with people, uh, traditionalists who identify themselves as um Orisha worshippers, which is Yoruba traditional religion, um, Christians, Pentecostals on the side who are trying to drive out the devil out of this um, festival, and Muslims. So I, I literally want to kind of encounter people and encounter this yeah. festival. And the only way you can is to be there. You have to be everywhere in order to understand what is going on in a festival like the one I'm researching. So in a way, it's like if you were trying to do like a study of carnival, you couldn't study carnival like going to carnival. Like you couldn't sit, and some people would say you could sit in the library, read about it, read all the books. But you, unless you go to the carnival, you don't really feel what it is. Exactly. But when a lot of us as black people, when we do research, we we do it in this kind of way. We want to be with people. We want to talk to people. My research, my PhD was the same. I want to talk to people, not just sit in a library and do it in a very theoretical way. So that is what ethnographic research. It's looks like about. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think the aim of my project is to develop a different kind of African contextual diasporan theology. Like how do we take seriously our traditions, our cultures, our ways of knowing, our ways of being, our ways of viewing the world um, in how we think about our Christian faith? And this, and this feels like. For some people, it might be quite a controversial question to ask, right? Because when I think about growing up, and I don't think this was just about being Caribbean, although it was partly about that. But, and I say that because I mean that the way that I think as Caribbean people, we can be really taught to see Africanness as a problem because of the way that colonialism has shaped our imaginations in the Caribbean and beyond. And this, but I think this also happens for African people as well, who even in Africa, right, is this real suspicion of um, what is African. And this, of course, is the, and we're going to end up in a lecture here, but this is only because I'm reading about this a lot at the moment, about the impact of colonialism on African people in the Caribbean and in Africa. And so much of the, the agenda of Europeans being in the Caribbean and in Africa is to make us reject what is African and adopt mm -hmm. what is European to become civilized. Yes. And so I'm thinking about the question that you're asking about how, whether it's possible, how we can hold on to traditional African ways of being and seeing the world and experiencing spirituality 
with Christianity. And for some people, that will be incompatible because the idea of Christianity they have is a white European idea of Christianity. Is this something that you that you're conscious of? Is this something that you think about even in your own actual life that you talk about never looking back as a Christian? How does that work with the work that you're trying to do with the questions you're asking? And I think it is taking a long process for me to get to where I've got to. Um, and just to give you a, a little kind of background, I would say the same um, self-hatred you see um, and anti-Blackness and anti-Africanness that you see in the Caribbeans is exactly um, the same to a lesser extent, perhaps, on the continent as well. Because we had colonialist missionaries teaching us doing the same very thing they were doing in um, to our brothers and sisters in the Caribbean and in um, to African Americans. But I think the question of how can you reconcile what has been taught is irreconcilable. You know, we've been taught that African spirituality, African religion is demonic, is primitive and it's juju you know that's another word that is often thrown around and therefore has no religious or spiritual or even theological value and i think it's important to maybe trace a bit of a history as to how that kind of occurred and the person i tend to turn to is willie james jennings in his work the christian imagination theology and the origins of race and i think it's this anti-Africanness, I think we should kind of put it in its context historically. And Jennings would kind of argue is kind of a product of the disease colonial imagination. And what he means is that when the missionaries and the colonialists first went to the new worlds like Africa, they essentially treated the Africans as the other. They highlighted their differences from Western civilization and casting their differences as deficiencies. And in this sense, Africa was seen as a place to project their worst nightmares and, and race its anxieties. For example, the, the, the philosopher um, Hegel perceived as Africa as a land of primitivism, which had nothing to contribute to civilization. So he actually said Africa has no history. So interestingly, Jennings argues that this time the Europeans, when they're encountering those who we will call Africans or those who have been racialized as black, they essentially developed a racial scale. And what does he mean by this? Essentially, the scale is that the, um, it was a scale in which to kind of gauge all peoples. So all peoples could be plotted between white at the extreme end, and white would equal beauty, good, holiness, right, godliness, and then black at the extreme end as demonic, dark, primitive, um, and then all other races can be plotted in between. Um, and essentially, Black people, African people on the continent and elsewhere were implicitly and explicitly told that the goal of human existence was to move, if possible, towards whiteness, towards Europeanness, in order for us to somehow achieve humanity or to be deemed fully human. So I would kind of argue that most Black people have this suspicion because we're still operating with the colonialist missionary mindset or imagination, what Carlton Turner, who I know you've had on this podcast, calls self-negation or self-hatred. So in a sense, when we go back and we ask the question, can African spirituality be reconciled with Christianity? I would say 100%. 
where I kind of start off with is the scripture John 1. You know, the word is, I, I mean, look, I don't even know it. I need to bring it up. Maybe you know yeah, it off you're your head. Preach, but you don't know. In I don't even know my scripture. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. And, and the, the word, word was, was with God. Exactly. And the the reason why that's important for me in, in thinking about how to reconcile what, what we've been told cannot be reconciled is for me, John 1, that particular scripture is the most syncretistic statement in the New Testament. Syncretistic. Tell the people what you mean. These Cambridge words, you know. <laughs> so essentially, syncretism is often deployed in a very negative way um, and it's essentially combining different beliefs and various schools of thoughts into one where you merge supposedly opposing positions together and you bring them together so for example in our case African traditional religion and Christianity they are opposites right we've been told and therefore to bring them together you're doing something harmful and that's how that's what we mean by secret syncretism but you're saying that in john one you see that actually this it's not a bad thing for deceit things that seem to be opposed which i guess is the whole incarnation right the incarnation being exactly the ultimate example exactly things that are supposedly opposite divinity and humanity being brought together into one being exactly um and this i think is how i often think about the importance of the kind of moving beyond the binaries, exactly. you know, that one set of things are good and one set of things are bad and you can't bring them together. Maybe we should take a step back and actually try to define what we mean by African spirituality, okay? Because there's a lot of rumours, a lot of rumours, a lot of images, a lot of things that come to mind when you say the words African spirituality. Of course, we're talking about a whole continent with mm-hmm. thousands of languages, cultures, of like the world views and perspectives on the divine. So what what are we even talking about? Let's let's go back to that and define or at least attempt to name some examples of what we mean when we talk about African spirituality. I think that's a very important question and is defining what we mean by African religion, African spirituality. Because like you've just said, Africa is a very diverse, has diverse religious practices. This is a collection of 55 countries, of course, that was constructed and reconstructed by colonialists, but who, as you've said, speak about a thousand languages. So when we speak about Africa, we must recognize that Africa is now a monolith or a homogenous group. Um, But it's also important to acknowledge that traditional African religions are not actually religions per se, because the idea of religion is a modern construct. It's really a 19th century missionary invention, the idea of religion. When we talk about religion, we often say it's separate from other aspects of one's culture, society and environment. But for many Africans, religion can never be separated from all of these. Spirituality is a way of life. It can never be separated from the public sphere. So religion informs everything in traditional African society. I mean, that includes art, marriage, health, how you dress, economics, politics and death. But also, it's important to also acknowledge at this junction that some people would argue that Christianity and Islam are equally indigenous, right? Um, For example, Christianity arrived on the African continent as early as 50 AD. 
And in the fourth century, modern-day Ethiopian Eritrea became one of the first regions in the world to adopt Christianity as its official religion. And I know sometimes, you know, we play this politics of, oh, that's North Africa, you know, what about South, you know, the Sub-Saharan Africa, Black Africa, essentially. I don't buy those distinctions because, again, they're colonialists for their own agenda. If we say Africa has no history, how do you do with Egypt, right? That's why these categories of North Africa and and Sub-Saharan Africa was first created. But I would either remember in the context of Nigeria, Christianity arrived in Nigeria as early as the 16th century, where, for example, the Binid Kingdom um, was trading with Portuguese um, um, as early as the um, 16th century. And as a result, the king at the time, King Oba Asegi, became a Christian and actually established a church in 1517. So this was during the reign of Henry VIII, the Tudor. So it's important to kind of remember that Africa has always been in connection with the world. So what do we mean by African religions? But I guess, I guess though, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Please do. And the one I kind of get the 50 AD story, right? This is the Ethiopian eunuch. This is the Mark the Apostle who come to directly back to Africa and bring the message of Christian faith back mm-hmm. there. And by that, it's nothing like what we know as Christianity today, by the way. It's a kind mm-hmm. of early, very young yes. about this man, Jesus, and how he died and rose again and all that mm-hmm. stuff. That's all that's going on. It's not, you have to now join this denomination and, yes. and yes. say this particular set of words and you'll be safe from hell. That's not what's going mm-hmm. on in that, at that time. <laughs> It's simply a message about this man, Jesus, who's God in flesh and who died and rose again. And he's bringing mm. this message back to his own people. And the stories of Egypt, Egyptian and Ethiopian churches in the early centuries, right, is like before one white man arrived in Africa with Christ, with a Christianity, there was one blooming already that had done mm-hmm. been blooming from the earliest days of the kind of first, second century. So that I can understand as like a... Christianity is African, right? Like it is, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a faith that has been thriving in Africa that had nothing to do with white colonial violence, mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. to do with guns and exploitation, slavery. Yeah. This is the kind of first Christianity to arrive in Africa. Is there? Fast forward now, 14 centuries later, we have this other Christianity that arrives from Portugal, as you've said, which is inherently white supremacist from the get-go. I mean, reading mm-hmm. the kind of the Pope's mm-hmm. letters mm-hmm. that basically give permission to the King of Portugal and the King of Spain to murder, pillage, steal, mm-hmm. do whatever they like, to convert mm-hmm. who they see as these heathen peoples to Christianity. We're talk- talking about a totally different belief system now. It, this is not. This is far from the Ethiopian eunuch. This is far from the Apostle Mark. This is not. This is something. To, this is far from Jesus. This is what's arriving in the fifteenth century. So, in a way, I guess I'm saying I can understand why people are quite suspicious of the kind of Christianities, and I'm very suspicious of the kind of Christianities that have uh, that arrive in Africa from mm-hmm. Europe, from Europe in that time in history mm-hmm. because they are not coming with any kind of pure heartedness. Christianity is another strategy Mm -hmm. to exploit 
the people that they encounter when they arrive. And so I think I say that because I think it's important that we are specific about the histories. Christianity isn't a white religion, but it has been and yes. is in many ways yes. um, because of the way that it's been used for white mm-hmm. supremacist in- interests. No, I 100% agree with what you've said there. So, so perhaps it's important that, so I, I kind of made those definitions because I think it's sometimes quite important. That's kind of the debates that's going around it. Mm. But for, for sake of argument um, and agreeing with you, how we can define African spiritualities, plural African religions, I'm, when we talk about that, we're usually referring to indigenous or native religious beliefs of African people way before the Christian and Islamic colonization of Africa. So when we're defining that, that's what we're referring to, indigeneity. And obviously that's a contentious word, but that's what we're referring to. So effectively, African traditional religions are about the ways in which African peoples before colonialism were experiencing the presence of the divine. Yes, yes. Defined in multiple ways. Yes. And so we kind of, we we talked a little bit already about the suspicion that there is around the language of African spirituality or African religions. But you've been working particularly on Yoruba traditional religion. Mm -hmm. What are the elements that you think actually are quite important for enhancing Black liberation, Black connectivity with God? But what are the things that you would say at this point should be valued, recaptured, that we might have forgotten or might not be aware of? Mm-hmm. What are some of those things that you think we need to hold on to? I mean, a few things that come to mind um, for me, the first would be, for example, that African spiritualities kind of has an integrated cosmology. And what I mean by this is um, they they basically have a holistic view of seeing the world of reality, right? The world is not just the material, what we can see, smell, touch, taste, and feel, right? The world is much more holistic. So it's dynamic in that sense. So oftentimes the distinction between the sacred and the secular, you know, in, in, in that sense is probably doesn't really exist in in african spirituality because religious beliefs for for africans kind of inform every aspect of their life whether that you're given birth or or marriage or family dynamics how you save your money um how you treat your neighbors religion or spirituality has a, a flow into all of that right do you mean then that for example a lot of people who listen are probably kind of evangelical pentecostal world where <laughs> the idea of spiritual warfare is major where there is like a Christian sacred world that is holy and where God is and the Holy Spirit is. And this is the place where we want to be. And then there is this place that is effectively given over to evil. The devil is having a party over there. All the (laughs) sin is over there. The temptations over there. The world is there. And you need to stay as far removed as possible from that space. You you obviously have to work and go to school in that in that secular <laughs> space, but you need to go. You better be prayed up because you don't know what might jump on you when you're on your way to work, or you are gonna face like sinful behaviors in that mm-hmm. space. Like mm-hmm. this is the kind of the way that the the, the cosmology you, you the word you use is very dualistic. So you're saying that in for example Yoruba traditional religion mm-hmm. that binary does not exist. Yes. 
But there are evil powers. There are 100%. evil powers and there are... So how does that actually work? Like, where do the evil powers fit in then if there's not a, a war between two worlds? But for, for I'd say for the Yoruba kind of um, spirituality, um, it's not it's not clean cut what is evil and what's good. Yeah. You know, this kind of distinction we have is not, doesn't sometimes work in their kind of worldview and and how they view reality right i'll give you a perfect example when the bible was translated into yoruba by actually a yoruba um, anglican missionary he struggled to find uh the word for satan the devil and he picked just some random deity a random god um, called Ishu. so growing up i always thought Ishu meant the devil right this <laughs> evil all right evil entity but then when you start studying africa um yoruba traditional religion you realize that actually issue is just this like trickster oh never mind um, issue <laughs> <laughs> yeah poor guy right <laughs> but the reality is that this idea these binaries in which we operate doesn't really work for you know a yoruba kind of worldview for example it's claimed that the yoruba believe up to about 201 gods or some even say 401 gods some even say a thousand and plus one but what's important in the one some theologians have argued actually is that it basically shows to you that the yoruba are always wanting to understand more and embraceive of other just to make this crystal clear for people, because I realize I've read some of this, so I kind of understand where you're, what this means. I can hear my Pentecostal family saying, two or one gods, Lord of mercy. There's only <laughs> one. There's only one. In Yoruba religion, there is a supreme god, right? Exactly. Who is the source of life, the source of it, everything that exists. Exactly. The one who, if we were going to choose a name for God, it would be... exactly but then you have all these other gods can you explain what that actually means so yes you're you're right that the yoruba believe in the supreme god and they name him olodumare olonru um they have all kinds of name to describe you know the supreme being the supreme god um who governs all things but interestingly in the yoruba cosmology there's these ideas of deities we call them orishas who sometimes they're deified individuals sometimes you they mean just... they're seen as gods exactly but not gods as in capital gods as in small so actually in the yoruba idea the orishas which are the small letter gods are much more closer to you than olodumare olodumare is someone you would not want to approach right mm. god is um uh, beyond our widest imagination. So in, in a sense, the Orishas became something close and personal. So the reason why there's this like crazy amounts of gods running everywhere in Yoruba land is because, <laughs> is because you know, if you got married, you will come with your own family deity, right? That is near to you, that is personal to you. And you bring that into your marital home. And your husband will likewise do the same. And so essentially, I would say that they're they're what we deem as closer and people who we could approach or deities we could approach as opposed to a Lord Mary. Okay. This is interesting. 
So, because I was first thinking, are they more like angels in terms of proximity? But then I thought, maybe not. Are they more like saints? So, like, in, like, Catholic spirituality... I wouldn't I say this. Because they're not, because they've never been human, right? They're kind of... Yeah, for some of them. Some so, of you them have, have, like, Shongo, who was a king, and um, no one knew how he kind of died. But I think when he did, he was angry, and thunder kind of was kind of going crazy in the city so people said oh he's turned into thunder he we now you know like have to Thor. worship he's him like the like Thor. exactly <laughs> the yoruba thor um so you have some who were individuals and you know they they become gods for different reasons but majority of them like you said i wouldn't describe them as angels i would describe them um for my pentecostal brothers and sisters and evangelicals would be ministering spirits that's kind of okay. how i would want to understand their role and and why i use ministering spirits with a small s is that i don't think this is me being theologically creative or daring i don't think they're in opposition to the holy spirit i think they're in cooperation with the work of the spirits this mm. is daring because what i'm saying is that the spirits and um not angels these Orishas are much closer to us than God himself or God's God self yeah. in that way. And do they have particular purposes or things you'd go to them for? So when you said about how like you might have your Orisha from your family and your husband or your spouse might, mm -hmm. are they how do you choose or do they choose you? Yeah, so again, religion um, conversion is very interesting for the Yoruba. They essentially believe that um, your path and what religion or worship more like um, you, you enter is already determined before you're born. So that's why religious conflict doesn't really majorly feature in, in, for the Yoruba mind, particularly I'll say the Yoruba religious conflicts, you can have families who are, you know, half of your family, your mum's a Muslim, your dad's a Christian. That is so typical in a Yoruba um, household. And then underneath, they don't say this, they're, they're going to the Babalaos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing all three, you know. Um, the third one, you know, everyone doesn't want to, everyone's being quiet. Wow. I'll give you an and example. I guess they, and I guess they believe then that, your, the children, whatever faith they choose or don't choose, is predetermined for them before exactly. they're born. Exactly, because what is more important for the Yoruba is your indigeneity as a Yoruba person. That's what binds you. The fact that you're a child of the earth matters much more than what, what worship you're wow. deciding to follow. That's why there's 201 gods, right? Also, in the religious front, things are also changing. So our grandparents were a lot more pluralistic and much more inclusive, which is kind of the Yoruba worldview. The the four one, the one, you know, you just add it all on, right? And and really, how they view the Orishas is utility. If they're not serving any purpose and you're doing sacrifices and they're not getting you anything, you you reject them. They literally die. Um, so the Orishas are very much dependent for their survival. They're very much dependent on ensuring that they're answering our prayers, right? Wow. Um, but now with kind of evangelical Pentecostal Christianity that is kind of fast growing on the continent, these hard lines and these binaries are now much more um, evident. And people are kind of operating within you marry a Christian, 
it must not be a Catholic, you know, you marry a Muslim, it must be a, a, a Shiite, you know, all these kind of distinctions that have, have kind of been imported into the motherland is kind of what we're contesting in the moment at the moment. But you asked me a question oh, about yes, Orishas. So I'll give you a perfect example. Oshun, which I know you know of, um, is a a um a feminine um Orisha. She's she's a goddess. And she's typically associated with water, purity, fertility, love. Um, and actually there's even an Oshun Shobo um uh, shrine in Nigeria where you can go to and you can meet an Oshun priestess. Um, and there's different kinds of Orishas, um, um, and they have different characters. Some of them are, don't play around, like Shongo, for example. Um, if you, um, some people have kind of argued, this is just controversial, that maybe we should bring back uh, Yoruba traditional religion and our politics, because before colonialism, you bet not be cheating people or or, do, or setting up system that will cause oppression because Shango will strike you. People were afraid. You take oath and you break it, Shango will strike you down and you <laughs> die. With the love in Jesus, you know, you can steal a billion and nothing will ever happen to you. You can even give 10% to the church and the, and the pastor will declare you as a holy and thou. Um, so, you know, there's certain Orishas that you have to, you're afraid of, and there's certain ones that, um, uh, uh, you more likely want to um, approach. And this is really interesting, what you just said there, although you said it in passing, because it makes me think that, in a way, this kind of tradition of having lots of these different gods who all have different qualities kind of just keeps everything in order, like you say, you know, like you know that there's a certain moral expectation now for how you act, because you know that there is a, a deity who's watching and is going to exactly. intervene and act against you if you do wrong to someone. And that gives very clear lines for how to behave. Exactly. Take that all away or kind of undermine all of that. And it's a bit of a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, I guess, you know, I think, well, the kind of fear of hell, I guess, could or could replace that. God who judges, but I guess so much has happened, happened that was not seen to have been judged. <laughs> That you yeah. might well think, well, I don't think this Christian God really is doing anything about evil in the world. So maybe I need exactly. to go back and exactly. see the gods who I left, who I left. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. And I, I also wanted to ask, and this is me just being super curious now. You talked about Oshung and it made me wonder, how do you approach them? Like if I decided, you know, I'm trying to get a, a partner. Do I go to this this shrine and I have to bring an offering? Is that how it works? Like if I wanted to have to intervene <laughs> on my behalf, I'm like I'm um, dating apps. They're doing nothing for me. So you know, interestingly, if you consulted an Ifa priest, a Babalao, um, they will they will get to the root of why you might be single, right? You know, singleness in their view is not what. You, you know at our age should should be experiencing you know you yeah. should be married having kids all that kind of stuff the traditional way of seeing things so what the what the babalawa would tend to do is you know consult the or you know consult the gods and find out um why selena single and they may say oh you know she hasn't given sacrifice to 
her ancestor for the last 10 years because, you know, all of a sudden she's a Christian, right? The ancestors <laughs> are starving. Uh, they need some food. Um, so they're blocking every opportunity for you to meet someone. <laughs> But the point is, what's important there is that, um, I know we're playing around, but what's important there is that there's always a reason why things might not be working. That's why mm. sacrifice in the Yoruba cosmology, Yoruba worldview is deeply important. There's sacrifice for everything. Ebo is what we call it. There's sacrifice for everything, whether you're traveling abroad you, you bet be making sacrifices. Whether you're going to school and you're doing exams, you better be making sacrifices. So sacrifice is such a big thing you do within Yoruba traditional religion. Wow, this is fascinating. And when you say sacrifice, what does this look like? What does this involve? Okay, so how it kind of works is based on the Orisha, you, that's the kind of sacrifice you do. So certain Orishas in their life form um, like certain things, like certain foods. So that's what you give. Certain Orishas like other things. So that's the kind of sacrifice that would be prescribed to to give. And then the most extreme end would obviously be animal sacrifice. Okay. They may say go and bring honey, right? You you wow. want oi oi is honey. You want smoothness and and kind of joy yes. in your life. Go and bring honey. And that will kind of represent what wow. you're beseeching um, the Orishas to bestow. And then this would just be taken by, would just be left there. Or will someone eat it? Or what happens to it? Sometimes it's eaten. No one tends to eat this. So I remember when I go to Nigeria and you see Ebo. Um, you, man, when I was young, you run away. You, you don't even want to be walking past that, right? And you see this littered everywhere to some extent. Usually in certain places like, you know, um, probably not Lagos, but like other places. And you see all this stuff littered. One of the days I did say, I thought Paul said, you know, eat and, you know, food sacrifice to gods or, or whatever. And I thought maybe one day I might just pick it up and start eating it. God knows what will happen to me, but, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes you can eat it. Um, sometimes they'll ask you to um cook and basically share it to the less privileged it really depends on what the oracles say um you should bring so interesting and i'm wondering and you might not want to answer this but i'm thinking about how do, is this for you something that you think is compatible with your christian faith <laughs> um <laughs> what though what specifically are you talking about i mean going to see diviners I Ooh. mean, offering sacrifices to Orishas or consulting them. Personally, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't make that step. And I think there's there's different reasons why I wouldn't necessarily. I think, and the reason why I, I like to define Ifa as not religion, because there are, there, there are parts of it that can and should be redeemed for, in my case, turn to Christ, right? They're parts that are are beautiful, excellent, and they bring richness to the body of Christ, 100%. And they're also parts which I, and, and it's funny because there's a guy right now, a friend of mine, he's doing a PhD, basically asking this question, should Christians be doing 
sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Yes, we agree that the Jesus is once and for all the ultimate sacrifice, right? And therefore there's no more need. But should we just still be doing it? Like, is there some kind of symbolism, significance behind it? And I think it's a very important question. These kinds of questions are the kinds of questions um, Blacks, Africans, African diasporas need to be wrestling with because we've never had the opportunity to wrestle with these questions because everything, basically the colonialists and missionaries came and say, throw away the baby and the bathwater. Everything was demonic. So we never had the opportunity to be theologically creative, to ask these really difficult questions. So what I would say is that um, there are parts that should be redeemed. And, and how I kind of see it is, you know, like when we say the throne room of, um, of God is both mercy and judgment, what, what I think African religions have often received is judgment. And I think my work is more of one of mercy and tenderness to discern and to, to pick out really delicately the bits where I think should be redeemed and should help us in our wholeness and journey in in following Christ. That's really helpful. And as I asked that question because as you were talking, I was I was speaking, I was saying, okay, so part of me feels something quite helpful about having a broader range of access to the divine. <laughs> so I quite like the idea that, you know, if something's going wrong in my finances, I can very specifically go to this Arisha and talk about this or offer a sacrifice. It gives me a sense of control, gives me a sense of agency that I can kind of influence the things that are going on. I guess Mm. again, there's things that are predetermined that I cannot change, Mm. but then there's kind of space for maneuver. I can, you know, make sure my ancestors are eating good to make sure (laughs) that my life is is blessed. (laughs) And that feels like I'm kind of like connected into a much bigger world than just me and God, which can sometimes be how it can feel in a kind of evangelical or Pentecostal Christian world. But then the other part of me thinks, is it quite good that I don't have control and I'm aware of that? Is something quite good happening in me as a as a human being when I can accept that I cannot fix everything and that I cannot predetermine the outcomes of everything in the world? Because it kind of feeds into my own ego issues mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it can be feed into my desire to control things mm-hmm. and that's not good for me and I know that as mm-hmm. a former personality perspective that like it's good for me to be out of control and to know that I'm not in control mm-hmm. it also makes me think about is there a risk that we then over spiritualize everything so if yes. somebody for example, has an accident or they they can't the devil. they can't find a partner, for <laughs> yes, example, or they yes. can't have children. Yes. Then it becomes very your fault. Yes. It's very yes. much your fault, isn't it? Yes. If you kind of if there's a way you can control everything, then if something's out of control or going wrong, you the only place to look is at yourself. Yes. And that I think can be an overbearing weight. Yes. Um yes. on people, especially when we think about the way that there are decisions that have nothing to do with us that impact yes. our lives yes. histories that have nothing to do with us yes. that impact our lives yes um you know it's no longer you know the racist or the sexist systems it's now my personal fault yes you know yes. It all kind of i think it all adds to those kind of challenges for me what you said is so important that we've never actually had the chance to hold up these traditions and say mm-hmm. 
do we think some of this is compatible or not? It's mm-hmm. just been decided for us yes. that we should reject all of this as problematic mm-hmm. rather than giving it an actual fair hearing, which is why I think your work is so important. And to, to even just jump on to what you said, I think that's kind of what I'm saying is that when we talk about these traditions, it, we should be the ones determining um, what is honourable and what are things that are harmful, right? Um, you know, this is not Wakanda. I mean, even even Wakanda, the film, is also problematic because... I love I mean, it, don't you dare. No, don't I love it. Dare. Trust me, I watched it like five <laughs> times in the cinema. Um, I didn't wear any dashiki or anything like that, but I genuinely <laughs> love the film. You let the people down, man. Yeah, I really did. I, I don't even know what. I was, maybe tracksuit bottoms. Um, proper South East London. No, 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 but honestly, Wakanda, for me, is even problematic because... Number one, um, how is it that this African nation has, you know, the greatest technology on earth and yet its brothers and sisters were being ravaged by colonialism and slavery, right? And did nothing, just sat there and protected itself. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Even so, sometimes we have a romanticized version of African traditional religion or how it was in the past, the, the good by and by. But the reality is there were a lot of inequalities. Um, and that's what I'm beginning to engage with African feminist theologians who say, well, wait a second, we should, we should rethink this whole um, move to embrace everything African and Af- African spirituality, because actually there's some really harmful parts. There are parts of it that discriminates um, and oppress women. There's parts of it that says women should not be in these spaces spiritually. So that's why I'm saying we need to have those kind of robust debates because there's tensions within them. But I think it's it's important that we do no longer live in the kind of disease colonial imagination and how we view ourselves because that's self-hatred right self-negation and and the only way we can do that is be, is almost do that internal work of kind of removing those names that have been spoken over us as a people is there anything else you wanted to say about things that we might hold on to and things that we should be cautious about as we think about african religions slash spiritualities I think the things that I want to hold on to dearly is um, it's ways of knowing. I think it's been, you know, we call it in academic word epistemologies. I think it's so important. There's something there that we've not, we've not even scratched the surface. And I think there's deep work that has to happen with, with us. Yoruba ways of knowing, Yoruba ways of being in the world. These things are really important. I mean, when we're talking about the environmental crisis, I'm one who would say, well, we need to become indigenous in the way we think about these solutions because the problems that got us here is not what's going to provide the solutions, right? I mean, I'm a lawyer and classic law, you learn property law, you learn John Locke, and he basically said land, basically said land is, anyone can own it. It is devalued, has no importance. It's just purely utility. Whilst in the Yoruba view, land is sacred. The earth is sacred. Earth and land is, is, is very much integrated in its, in its understanding of the realities of the world. So I would be one who would say Yoruba epistemologies has a lot to contribute to Christian theologizing. We'd, I don't think we think about how we know things. So when you say the African ways of knowing, what does that mean? 
what are the ways in which we in the West will think about how we know things, right? It's usually through perception. Reason is like massive in, in, in the West. That's kind of the, the, the best way of knowing things. How do you know things is by reason. And by that, you mean being able to explain. Exactly. Exactly. But for the Yoruba perspective, there are other ways of knowing that is beyond just the rational. And those are the kind of things that I would say is very interesting. So I'll give you one example of like, um, uh, <laughs> this is controversial. Um, I don't know what, what I think about it, but divination is ways of knowing, right? Even Pentecostal Christians in some way are practicing that ways of knowing, you know, word of knowledge, word of encouragement, um, the prophetic. That, that's, that's why even though with all its problematics with Pentecostalism and its theologies, I would say Pentecostalism has allowed probably one of the most um, of the Christian denomination that has allowed African spirituality to find space and voice. That's why you see Pentecostalism is the fastest growing religious sect in, in, in Africa. Is it still called a sect now with all this, all the numbers? Okay, maybe not sect, denomination, I don't know. Tradition. Traditions. Um, thank you. You know that I'm a Pentecostal scholar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a Pentecostal expensive. scholar, so good. Thanks for correcting me. <laughs> um, but you have to ask yourself why. Why is it that when the missionaries left during independence, Christianity exploded on the African continent, exploded because Pentecostalism has a way of integrating um, their worldviews, you know, deliverance Even ministry. Even the healing, yeah, healing. healing deliverance. Very, very traditional praise, African thing. Exactly. Praise breaks, dance, ministry of dance. You know, these are the things that, we would once have practiced, you know, and the ways in which we connect with um, uh, the universe, the spiritual world, which is also equally as real as the physical. So all these ways of knowing um, and ways of operating in the world, I would say Pentecostalism has found, has given African spirituality voice and space. Yay for the Pentecostals. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know that I know that there's things to talk about with that. But, you know, on this Of point, course, of on course. Point, on this point, let's give them something, Let's right? give them their, let's give Pentecostalism their respect that is true. Exactly. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is our connection to our ancestors. This is something that I, has become very important to me as I've, particularly, I think, when I lost my mom. I was mm. really needing something more than what I had inherited. Mm. So in, in our Christian world, somebody dies and they kind of, we know we'll see them again one day, but that's all we say. We don't mm. have a kind of anything more beyond that. We don't really expect to be engaging with them or somehow interacting with them. We don't really mm -hmm. think much about what they're doing mm -hmm. in this in-between space. And for me, that was just gave me emptiness. Mm. So that was like I don't I know what to do now we've talked about how life goes on after death but mm. there's nothing to kind of fill the gap between now and this supposed day when the dead in Christ will rise first etc mm. and I so I'm very in, I got very interested in thinking about ancestral connections and and I'm wondering for you who's who you say I've never looked back I'm a Christian boom boom and you're also very much engaging in these questions about 
what elements of our African traditions, religions and spiritualities we can engage with. Like, where does this, all this stuff about ancestors play in? Because I can see in the biblical text so many yes, references to yes, ancestral yes, history. Yes, yes, Like, you can't get far before, before yes. you're hearing about our ancestors and, and their lives and what they did and exactly. um, remembering them. So I feel like it's quite okay. And then on the other hand, there's I had a student in my old workplace who was doing a dissertation, which is basically like, we cannot engage with ancestors at all. We shouldn't talk to them. We shouldn't seek wisdom from them. We shouldn't think about them. We and and, and in a way that kind of presumed that that the uh, that what African traditional religion was talking about was worshiping ancestors, and so that was where she's coming from. That it's about ancestral worship. We don't worship ancestors. We only worship God. And so for her, it was like just close that door, Selena. Like she was in Barbian, mm-hmm. and she okay. was like, what this poor little Caribbean girl. <laughs> Just lost her sense of self and that she's trying to pick up things that she shouldn't be picking up. But I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Okay, so how do I start? I'll say like the reality is that black people in the diaspora and the continent have been doing this practicing of honoring the dead or ancestors. I mean, let me give you a, a, a funny example. I don't know if you've been watching the Netflix series Top Boy. Have you been watching that? I do not watch it. My family knows. I, I get very emotional watching anything that's too real. <laughs> that's to do with black people tra- and trauma. So I said, you don't watch that over there. I'm, I'm going to watch. Good for you. Good for you. But but let me, the reason why I say that is because the, the, the last season, season five just came out. Yeah. Everyone's been complaining. I'm not sure how, what I think about it. But what's important there is that um, at the end of season four, um, the main character, Jamie, was shot in the head by Solly, who was played by Kano, right? And at the beginning of season five, we see Jamie's crew and his gang members literally offering a drink to him and pouring alcohol to the floor. They're not doing ancestral worship. For them, that's what we do. We pour mm. alcohol to the floor. And I sat back there and said, what? Where did this come from? And you see this, you watch American, African-American films, you always see they're always pouring drink to, you know, the dead, their, their family members, the fallen soldiers, right? And Mike, and I was going to ask you, do you, is that something you kind of seen in the Caribbean context? I think I've definitely seen that happen. Yeah. I feel and, like I've seen Rastas do this a lot. Yeah. And so the question for me is, um, how does a Black British Caribbean participate in that and do that and for me this is where i would argue that african spirituality has been retained by our brothers and sisters who you know who who left to the new worlds so so really you kind of find we're already kind of honoring and remembering our ancestors and for me how i kind of think about this um i i usually think about hebrews 12 again we're getting bible here and particularly Hebrews um, 12, 1, which basically states, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. And when you kind of look at the preceding verse um, of 11, it just talks about all the good ancestors that did good, good things that we should model, right? So for me, I'm like, actually, Like you say, there's evidence of 
ancestral, we have to make a distinction though between veneration and worship. There's ancestral veneration within the scriptures. It's Hebrews is telling us, consider your ancestors of good faith and model them, remember them and, and behave like them and, and draw on them as you persevere the race that Christ has laid for you. So I think it's therefore important to draw a distinction between veneration and worship. And I think it's probably more of this idea of ancestral worship or ancestral veneration is probably more of a Protestant problem than I'll say for my Catholic brothers and sisters, right? I think think it's more of our problem than more of our Catholics because Catholics uh, venerate the saints uh, when they emulate their lives, their spirituality, they pass their supplication through them to God. I mean, they ask saints to pray to God for them, um, just as people will ask their colleagues or friends to pray for them. Christians will profess the Nicene Creed or the Apostle Creed, which confesses that uh, we believe in the communion of saints, the communion of saints, the living and the dead. It's in our creed. So Christians venerate their saints in many ways, which includes celebrating their feast displaying their statues, images, adorning them with flowers and lights. So what am I suggesting here? I'm saying that ancestral worship is different from ancestral veneration. I think what is acceptable for me in my kind of religiosity is ancestral worship is very different from veneration. And veneration is is important. Like what is the difference in actual practice and in belief? So Yoruba worldview has a distinction between ancestors and orishas your your, your ancestors are not orishas they're not gods right you don't worship them rather and also how to obtain ancestorship is not you know you sign on the card and tomorrow you become an ancestor you actually have to live a morally good life Mm -hmm. right you have to also attain a certain age like so there's there's a hard criteria for becoming an ancestor. You can't be a terrible human being and you think you're going to be an ancestor. No, you're going to be forgotten. So in a sense, for the Yoruba, ancestorship and the way of gaining that is a sense of actually gaining immortality. Because when you're remembered, that's that's how immortality works in their kind of cosmology. Wow. So ancestors are not gods. They're not deities. They're just your family members who have lived this earthly world, but they're now in the other world. So they understand both worlds now and therefore can make supplications on your behalf. Okay. So there's all, the only option in Yoruba tradition is to venerate your ancestors. There's no option for ancestral worship. But that is something that people seem to think is a thing and makes them very worried about any kind of ancestral engagement at all. But is that yeah. not something that's even relevant for Yoruba? I think I think where it becomes difficult is when, you know, people say they set up shrines for their ancestors, but what do they mean by shrines? I'm I'm always asking, you know, having a picture of your, you know, my parents are also equally dead, have pictures of them. And I mean, I don't do this, but, if, you know, people do this. They light candles. Um, they may beseech their parents to pray for them. I think that's different from worship, right? And I think worship would usually involve in the Yoruba mindset, um, sacrifice. And that's what the Orishas would usually demand of you, right? Okay. Don't bring a sacrifice. But usually your ancestors, 
wouldn't and shouldn't because they don't have any mystical powers, right? They don't have any kind of greater power, extraordinary powers, and they can't perform miracles. But rather there's a, you know, some some people argue that ancestral veneration in our, it's a sense of psychological relief for us. And so the distinction is very important to have. Do I incorporate that in my practice? Not really, but I do... I have always wondered why um, I remember when my mum passed away and, and for some strange reason, I mean, they, they lived in Lagos, but they also had a house in Ibadan, um, which is where we're from. They decided to bury her there. I'm like, why would you bury her in the cemetery? Like, why would you? This is so backwards, right? But obviously, obviously this was like 13 years ago. I was not thinking about these things. But when I started looking and I was like, there's a reason why people were burying themselves in their yard because it was proximity it's like that in jamaica when i went to the house where my grandmother was born which is for me was a very sacred experience in the front of the house we walked over the graves of mm-hmm. my great great grandparents my great grandparents they're just out there in the front of the house so every time <laughs> you go home from work it's like hey nan hey great nan yes. i thought it was be- it freaked me out at the time because we in the UK, put our those who have passed on, we put them away from us. We don't want to face exactly. it. We don't want to see it. We don't exactly. want to be. We don't want to feel the grief. Exactly. And I felt like that alongside way about my mom, but I always wanted to have her close to me. And so it's a very weird thing to have to drive after mm-hmm. living with somebody all that time to have to drive mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. them where they're buried. Mm-hmm. It's for me it feels very unnatural. I don't really understand that way I- of holding that your your ancestors close to you even after death because then that's the only way they are remembered right yeah the proximity and so now i'm like oh i see why they were they buried her there i'm like no we could have sold this house um you know i'm, I'm always looking for money so if anyone wants always. to donate um <laughs> Nigerians. Uh, these Nigerians, <laughs> right? They always come with their ties and offering. No, but seriously, <laughs> um, um, it made me realize um, there's a reason why um, these things are done, which I would, I then thought was primitive and backwards, right? But I didn't, I didn't see the connection yes. um, between immortality and ancestorship, and we can't get away from it because it's, it's so steeped in African spirituality. It, there's ancestors everywhere. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Do I engage? It does. It does. Not really. And and as you said that, I felt I was reminded of, I read a paper once about Jesus as an ancestor, as a exactly. great ancestor in African theology. Exactly. Exactly. And for me, it helped me to to see, that. I think that was one of the first times when I saw how much we had just been brainwashed into thinking that anything ancestral anything African was incompatible with Christianity yes, yes. and we had to kind of move far away from it and actually yes. I started to think this makes a whole lot of sense to me more than a lot of the theology I've read by white people about Jesus yes, yes this yes. makes a lot of sense and um and this is why I love your work and why I had to have you on to talk about this today thank you so much it's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, I feel very chuffed to be here. So thank you for inviting me. And actually, before we close, we have to give a shout out to your new book. 
that has dropped. Oh, I know yeah. you wouldn't do it. You know, I'm a typical Nigerian. I will sell. <laughs> I'll, I'm trying to get sales, man. I got 10, 10% commission on this. Um, so for you who do not know, uh, Selena's book has dropped. Um, do you want to talk about it? My well, academic monograph is coming out. I don't know exactly the date of that, actually. And it's going to be stupidly expensive. This is why I have it's like a hundred and something pounds. Like a hundred and ten euros. What's it called? The Spirit and the Body Towards mm. a Womanist Pentecostal Social Justice Ethic. Wow. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you so much. It's a much needed work. Oh, it said 4th of December 2023. Ah, uh, okay. So it hasn't dropped yet. No. How the two December books. Look at that. It's going to be a bump <laughs> a month, isn't it? Wow. But no, thank you thank so you much so for much. having me. Thank you so much for joining us.